This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey guys, Jeremy here with Simple Little Life, and welcome to another episode of the Simple Little Life podcast. Today, I'm joined in the studio with Thaddeus Hicks. Thaddeus, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. So, I'm really excited that you're uh, you're on. You just agreed to, to chat. Um, obviously, we're going to get to the grinder stuff. I have one of your grinders, um, but I'm also very interested in in how you came into this field. So. I guess could we just uh, just kind of go back to you know is this kind of where you started out of high school? Did you want to get into this industry or how did you kind of get to this place? Yeah, so I think uh, the best way to do it is go back um, to my very beginnings of uh, of life almost when I was uh, a little kid. You know, I always liked working with things, working with my hands, uh, always working with Legos and and different things like that, taking apart like VCRs and stuff. So at a very young age, I know I knew that I wanted to be an inventor is kind of what I called it. I didn't really know mm-hmm. what that meant. Um, but that coupled with uh, some life experiences led me towards this this path. Um, so when I was about 12 years old, I started working in a, a strawberry field. And uh, it's a little local place where you could go and pick strawberries and, um, and make some money. And it was great. And I did that uh, all the way every summer all the way up until like my second year in college, able to make some money and um, and work with my hands as well as get some great life experience of hard work, you know, picking picking strawberries. And then you can mm-hmm. move up into different career paths there by, uh, you know, going into like a field boss position where you help coordinate strawberries. And then uh, also you can work what we call the line, which is help take out the defects in the strawberries on the line and, uh, help ship the, the, the completed product to local stores and stuff like that. So, you know, at a very young age, I had this combined uh, thing that I wanted to work with my hands. I wanted to invent things. And then I had this really strong work ethic that uh, was ingrained at a very young age uh, by working at this uh, strawberry location. Yeah. And, and so where was this? Where did you grow up? Uh, my, I grew up in Walla Walla, Washington. It's in the southeast corner of Washington State. Yeah. Uh, and the, the place we, so if you're ever in the area, you got to try clicker strawberries. They're, they're amazing and they're, and they oh, really? sell out so fast. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. He's cool. With Washington state university, they developed a, a berry called, I think it's the, uh, Puget summer. And it's the only berry that they're able to, you know, they, they produce it. Um, they're all, they're the only people able to produce it and stuff. So it's kind of a, a unique, a uni- unique thing there. And they're really, really good. Yeah. And so like, I'm just kind of trying to envision this. Did you have like some type of container that was like strapped around your body when you picked these things or were you just carrying <laughs> buckets? No, they they made these uh, little carts that you would put a flat on and it had a wheel in the front and you'd move the, the wheel and you're on your knees picking these strawberries. And when you want to move again, you'd move the cart and this little wheel. No but uh, I mean, they're, Growing up on a farm, you you understand that you know things are get or done kind of builds. Yeah. You know, tack weld here, tack weld there. <laughs> it's yeah, they they were uh, kind of janky. Some of them had wooden wheels, some had like the plastic wheels, and you always hope you got the plastic wheel ones. There was always like fights for those. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. And then how many how many 
like uh, how long would you be picking each day and how many, how many pounds would you pick? Yes. Starting at 12 to 16, I believe there's labor laws in Washington state where you, on a farm, you can work about four hours in the morning. Um, I think it, it's even extended if you're not related. But I think if you are related, there's different laws. Uh, so we'd work uh, from about seven to uh, about 11 picking strawberries and uh, I would pick about 10 flats which is those little green boxes you see I think there's uh, I think there's 12 in each flat and a good day would be 10 to 15 on a really good day to be about 30 in those four hours you get about wow. you know two 250 a flat uh, picking them so yeah it was it was really good got uh, got some money to, to start some different different hobbies that uh, so yeah, it was a really great experience, you know, how to handle money and, and work experience uh, very early on, which I think translated into, um, you know, how to start a career and then how to start a business. Mm-hmm. And so then you said you did that into your second year of college. What were you studying in college? So I went to Washington State University and I studied uh, mechanical engineering. You know, like I said, I wanted to be an inventor. I didn't know what that, that really meant. And so when I was looking at colleges, I was looking at, you know, different programs and uh, mechanical engineering I found was the best program that has the most all around engineering experience in it. Um, mm-hmm. So the difference, you know, you have civil, you've got chemical, you got materials engineers, you got electrical engineers, mechanical engineering kind of combines all of those and you get all of those practices at a very basic level, but then it goes into, um, engineering principles that deal with dynamics so uh, civil engineer will will study statics like bridges and houses and mechanical engineers will study dynamic things things that move like cars and drivetrains and you know all that sort of stuff so uh, it gives you the i think the most well-rounded engineering experience as well as the additional dynamic uh dynamic experience we kind of always hmm. tease the civil engineers like if you can't make it as mechanical you go and do civil <laughs> but <laughs> uh I think those guys, once they get out of college, you know, they have a, a whole bunch more writing on their shoulders because they're doing infrastructure kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, when we, um, like I went, I, I got a millwright apprenticeship and we had, there were a few really good instructors and some of them were mechanical engineers as well. And, you know, they, they'd cover the basics and some of the students, I put myself in them, were really, really interested and so every now and then they'd kind of get a little deeper than what our text was about and they'd kind of just shed a little bit of light on on their side with the mechanical engineering background that they had and it was incredible when they especially when they got into things like um different types of lubrication like elastro hydrodynamic lubrication and and the way that different bearings work oh it's just it's incredible yeah it's such a crazy field like even in in mechanical engineering like there's almost entire fields just for like fasteners isn't that correct yeah yeah it's fastener technology is um it's really it's really important to know but it's it's also not a set you would think okay you just put a fastener on you're good to go Mm -hmm. but it's like do you use lube do you not use lube what torque value do you put it to um, mm-hmm. and there's a whole bunch of different things on like, do lock washers actually work? You know, what is a, a washer actually used for? Um, so you get into all of those kind of things and it's, it's super interesting at a very nerdy level, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's funny cause I love that stuff. So, so say with a flat washer, do you know, um, I mean, uh, when I worked doing airport conveyors, we bolted everything together with three eighths, 16 bolts. 
um, usually one inch, and we always had to have a, a flat washer. Is that is that just kind of sort of to spread out that load, or is that to prevent like the the edges of the hex from digging in? Or I guess that's kind of probably very situation specific, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so the flat washer is was originally developed to pre-tension the bolts. The the material would be softer, such that you could squish it a bit, and that oh, okay. acts as a very you know very big spring so the bolt connection would stay together a little bit better uh then i think you know aesthetics came into it where you're not digging into like a paint job or something you help spread that load out even further um i think you know that also comes into it too Mm mm-hmm that's fine. You know, you could go down, you could go down like a million questions that I have for you, but I'm <laughs> sure people would just start falling asleep if they don't don't care about this stuff. So, when you did, you have any particular industry that you wanted to get into when you're doing your you're going to school? Yeah. So originally, I really wanted to do um, engineering for like a bike company, like Specialized or Trek bikes oh, really? or something. Yeah, I'm I'm a really big cyclist and uh, started cycling. Um, at a pretty young age with my dad and cycling with the local road bike community. And then we, on Sundays we go out and mountain bike and stuff like that. Uh, so I, I always kind of wanted to do, you know, a specialized trek. And I contacted those people while I was doing, you know, school to see if I can get internships or something like that. But it was, it's a very tough business to get into. And I think yeah. even at that, um, the margins are so slim that uh, I don't think the engineers in those, those fields are paid, paid all that well. Um, but that was, that was my original intent. What happened is, um, I got an internship at a company called Schweitzer Engineering Laboratories in Pullman. So I was able to work there about 10 to 15 hours a week while I was going to school and then full time during the summer. And, um, which was great because at that point, uh, my wife and I were going to get married. We got married really young. Uh, it was my, I think my, after my uh, before my senior year in college, we got married. So it was great to have that income and, mm-hmm. uh, and that experience, but Schweitzer engineering, they do, um, they do like relays for the electrical grid system. So they're, they're used all over the world. And my department, we would take those relays and put them inside of a custom enclosure and we'd wire them up and then send them to the customers as like a complete package. So we were called the custom enclosure group and we, we designed and developed all the all the enclosures. Worked with our different enclosure manufacturers, or we made them in-house uh, to to do all sorts of different uh, applications around the world for the electrical grid system. Hmm. And so those must like I'm thinking it's not just the size of a light switch. It's like big, huge components, is it? Yeah. So you know, you see like those uh, boxes on the side of the street. They're usually painted green. It's a yep, very yep. particular green. It's called Munsell, and I forget the name of it, but it's a green color. It's actually really hard to find, but everybody hmm. wants that particular green because I think it blends in well. Um, but it's like those size of components um, oh, okay. going into like industrial uh, power grid systems. Uh, yeah, that, that do all the relay work. So if you see your lights flicker, and it flickers yep. three times, that's an SEL relay testing the system to see if there's a oh, fault really? in it. And then if it if it detects a fault after it flickers three times, then it'll shut down the grid system until it's fixed. Oh, that's crazy. And that's just like an automated feature built in? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so the power grid system is is, you know, really old. They're using like mechanical, electromechanical relays. And then SEL was the first one to develop the electric relay, 
which is able to you know take all this processing power that we have now and do all those electrical mechanical things in a much smaller form factor and do it uh, more reliably. That's cool. Yeah. And so how long are you working there? So I was interned there for about two years. And then after college, uh, the internship ended and that was right at 2010. So right when the economy was trying to make a comeback around from the 2008 crash. Um, so I was kind of worried about finding a job out of college. Uh, but luckily I, I found a job in Seattle, Washington over on the other side of the state. And, uh, we, I worked at a company called HKX. They did hydraulic piping kits for excavators. So we did okay. custom, um, hydraulic lines for, uh, Komatsu, Cat, Cabelco, Link Belt, you know, you name it. We did all these, mm. these, uh, custom piping kits to run like their attachments, like thumbs, uh, uh, the jackhammer kind of attachments, you know, the compactors, anything they want to mm -hmm. run. We built these kits from the control valve or in case added a control valve all the way out to the end of the boom and, uh, and to deliver the hydraulic oil out there. Yeah. That's cool. I've got a, when I was working with Sanjel, I did, um, a lot of hydraulics. I ended up, and we is, everything was all custom. We had, you know, for big, huge, um, cylinders and, and pumps and motors. They had these, these things that almost look like a blender for mixing up different chemicals. Um, and uh, it's all with hydraulic motors and stuff. So I've done a lot of hydraulic work. It's, it's fun stuff. It's very, uh, you know, we'd run some of these hoses in these frames and we'd have like three inch suction lines and we'd have to run like uh, the, the, the trailer was about 40 some feet. But by the time you go up, you know, over whatever equipment, we'd have to run like, sometimes it'd be like 97 foot runs of three inch and the suction hose was yeah. fairly thin, but oh mm -hmm. man. We'd, use, we'd have to actually have winches and, and we'd tie on and actually winch these cables through these rigs and stuff. So I, I really enjoy hydraulics, but man, it can be hard work. But the stuff you were doing, was there a lot of a steel tube? Yeah, so we, we tried to do steel tubing, tubing um, all the way out the boom to protect it uh, for, mm -hmm. from snags. And also it looks better. So the, the, hard, yeah. the hard point with that was um, every excavator is different. So we had to figure out how to match attach these mounting points and then figure out how to um, bend these tubes appropriately with these compound complex angles, which was, uh, which was a challenge. You know, we'd have to bend uh, probably five to 10 different tubes to, to get it to lay just right. Um, yeah. And while I was there, we were trying to figure out, you know, how do we go to a yard with all these excavators and all the new ones and we scan them using like this, uh, uh, this point detector, kind of like a big radar kind of thing, and then yep. put that into our 3D program to where we could we could lay out the tubes and get it, you know, about where we want it, and then try, you know, our first set of bent tubes on it to try to get that number of iterations down. It was yep. never going to be perfect because, you know, bending, you know, you got plus or minus one degree, and things don't always quite come out how you think they are going to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then at the time when you're bending, were they, were those CNC tube benders or were they still manual? Yeah, we were using a manual. We had, a, we, had wow. a, we had one guy out in our shop that would bend all of our tubes. We, that, that takes some skill that yeah, there. Yeah. We, we really wanted to get a CNC tube bender, one of those mandrel benders, which is just like can do like helical kind of crazy yeah. shapes. Um, but you know, the cost, those were quite high and this is a very small company. I think we had, uh, 
maybe 20 employees, I think five in the engineering department, and then, you know, the rest in operations, shipping and manufacturing. That's crazy. Yeah. That's cool. And then uh, for how long were you there? I was there for about two and a half, three years. Yep. And then from there, uh, my wife and I, uh, she... So she's about two years younger than I am, and she wanted to. Uh, she graduated from University of Washington, the Bothell campus, which is really great for her, uh, the campus there. And so we were kind of thinking, okay, now what do we do? To now that you're out of college, do we settle down in Seattle? You know, what do we do from here? We started looking at like house prices in Seattle. We lived in Woodenville, which is about 20 minutes north of Seattle, but still kind of considered the Seattle area. And uh, house prices were like, you know, three hundred thousand for like a starter home. And it's like, wow, when you come out of college, you don't have that sort of money. You don't have really yeah. any money at all, especially with debts from college. And you know, you're just starting life where you need a car and you know all this sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So we we really couldn't afford a house there. Uh, so we we started looking around, and I found out uh, a company back in our hometown in Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, called Key Technology, and uh, since I was, you know, still cycling with the local cycling group, every time we came back to visit her parents, uh, my parents had moved to Missoula, Montana, when I started college, uh, but her parents okay. are still there. So I come back and cycle with the guys, and there was a guy in the cycling club that would um, that works at, at Key Technology is one of the senior engineers. He does all this really cool um, dynamic analysis on the computer and stuff. And so I found out through him that they were hiring in one of the groups, engineering groups there. And so I applied for it and then I uh, got the job and we moved back to Walla Walla to where we were actually able to afford a house, which was great, mm-hmm. and uh, started working at Key Technology. And what did they manufacture there? So the great thing about working in like the strawberries in Walla Walla is I got a little bit of experience with the food processing and food related um, industry and so key technology what they do is they make food processing equipment um, I really like to t- uh, call it you know two different product lines we have one product line that um, that moves product from one point to another uh, mm-hmm. and we use vib- big vibratory conveyors and that's the product line that I work with and then there's another product line that uses uh, optical sensors and x-ray technology to take a picture of a of a product in this case, like fry, let's just call it a fry. And it'll take a 360 view of that fry on the belt as it's moving, you know, really fast. We're, uh, I don't know the feet per second on the belt, but it's it's cooking. I mean, we're doing yeah. tons and tons of product uh, per, per hour. Um, I want to say like... I'm not going to even say I'm going to get my numbers wrong, but you'd be, you'd be amazed about how many fries go through on our equipment. Um, really? Yeah. So this this fry is moving really fast. We're able to take a picture, fuse all of these different pictures together and technologies, and detect if the fry has a bad spot in it, mold or um, what they call a sugar end or something. You know that you don't want to eat, and yeah. um, it's able to send a puff of air and knock that product out of the product stream <laughs> as the good product really? goes over. Yeah, it's really cool technology. And so every single fry was scanned like yeah that. every single fry and some wow. in some cases like in europe they're doing it twice um really? once for the fry and once right before you go into the bag 
of the uh, you know into the bag for to be frozen or after it's been frozen it goes into the bag they scan it again to make yep. sure there's nothing from the processing plant that gets into the bag like you know a little piece of uhmw comes off of the machines or you know something like a bolt falls yeah. off and into the you know that way they're able to not do recalls because they found like a piece yeah. in a bag they have to recall that whole lot from like that whole day which is a hundreds That's of crazy. You know, probably millions of dollars worth of product that they have to dig through to make sure it's okay um, so they're yeah. starting to use them in two different locations now. Yeah. That is cool. Yeah. On top of that, all the bad press. Um, and do you remember this was years and years ago when people were finding, was it Pepsi cans? They were finding like needles or something. Oh, I don't, I don't remember that, but I, I could see that. Yeah. It was in the nineties and it, it ended up turning up. Somebody got caught on a security camera at a convenience store and every one of them was staged. Oh, wow. So they basically crack a can of pop, take a few steps, and then they kind of turn around and put like a needle in it. And I remember it was a big deal. I don't know if it was Pepsi or Coca-Cola, but I remember that going on. And then, of course, I was nervous. I'm like, I don't know if I buy pop anymore. But <laughs> um, yeah, I know like anytime we've got some, like a lot of meat uh, beef processing around us. And I know anytime uh, anything happens, right, it, it's a major deal. They'll shut down, like you said, several days sometimes of production and costs companies hundreds of thousands, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's crazy. I know. And then the little air blasters. That, that would be is it fun to watch. Do you just like watch every now and then a little fry goes flying across the room or yeah, something like I mean, that? You can check it out on, on YouTube. I think we have a channel, Key Technology, or you could just say food processing equipment. We're probably the biggest food processing yeah. equipment supplier in probably the world. Um, we like to say we're the biggest stainless steel consumer uh, west of the Mississippi because uh, everything we do is stainless really? steel. So the product line that I do is these big yeah. vibratory conveyors. And, you know, they can be up to 180 feet long before we do a different style. And even then they can be even longer. But, you know, some of these plants that we go and we do uh, for the big potato processors, they can be 200 pieces of equipment. Um, so, you know, billions and millions of dollars um, in just, you know, food processing conveyors. Um, and our conveyors are really cool. You can check them out on YouTube. They, uh, I don't know, I like to describe it, describe them as like a three mass system, but if you're not familiar with that, um, if you think of the Tacoma Narrows bridge where you've got, um, okay. your support structure and you've got these cables that hang down to the bridge. So when that yep. thing started to vibrate that, that, uh, the wind actually created a hit the natural frequency of those cables. And then those cables started to vibrate, yep. which caused the bridge starting to vibrate. But the, you know, the frame didn't, didn't really vibrate. Um, so mm-hmm. what our systems do is you have a frame, which has the motor mounted to it uh, at some angle and some RPM and some weight setting of the, the motor. And you hit the natural frequency of these arm springs that we have that attach between the frame and the bed. And then the bed starts to vibrate. Um, and that's really? how you move the product. And since it's on a stainless steel pan, it's easy to clean. You don't have these rollers or um, any sort of uh, over laminations you would get with a belt and stuff like that. So it's a really yeah. clean way of yeah. moving products, product uh, from one area to another uh, within a plant. You know, stainless steel, um, essentially no moving parts except for these arm springs. So it's very, very clean way to do it. Wow. And now those... How, that's not the, the belts that would really fly those fries across, right? You're not talking several yeah. hundred feet. That's probably a little slower. 
it's it's a little slower, but we can make these things, you know, 48, 60 inches wide, and you can have a product depth of, you know, anywhere from two to five inches. So it's, you know, 60,000 pounds an hour. Wow. Yeah. And they'll run multiple lines, you know, they'll have up to probably four different lines doing 60,000 to 100,000 pounds an hour. Yeah. And so the, 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 the frequency then, the motor that drives these, is it like a little counterweight on there? Yeah, so, it's um yeah, so what it, it does it's an offset counterweight and it creates yeah. a sinusoidal wave. So you're you're forcing um, a forcing function in one direction then in the other direction. Yeah. And then we mount two motors on each side of the shaker. So when they spin outside they cancel, but when they spin in the line that we want, they add. So you're oh, okay. you're getting only force in one direction and they're canceling in all the other directions. Wow. Yeah. That is really really fascinating. Yeah, so I started out there as a uh, designer, designing the shakers for different customers and working with customers, seeing what they need, and you know, and then you get called. And you, but the really cool thing is, you know, about Key, um, HKX, and uh, SEL Wire Work, they were all manufacturing-based uh, companies. So you design the thing, and then it goes out to the manufacturing floor, which is you know a f- couple couple steps away. And if something goes wrong, you know, the welder or the assembly person, you know, will come to you and say, hey, you know, you know, this went wrong. What do you want to do? So there's a lot of problem solving uh, involved in all those, which I think is really great experience for any engineer to get rather than, you know, sending your design to a fab shop that you may not know if there's problems. Uh, they may just wait, work through them or they may get in hold of you. But, mm-hmm. you know, going out into the shop floor and, and just checking up, talking with the welders, talking with, you know, the assembly people you learn you learn a lot that way mm-hmm, absolutely um I, t- I talked similarly ab- about this on one of my previous episodes and like when i was at sand gel you know you get the drawing package down it's like okay we had to do this stuff and there there were some of the the on the engineering team that did not want to be in the shop they're like <laughs> we were way below them right yeah and they were the ones that constantly had problems and they'd send us these drawings and it's like well, yeah, this is a great idea, but you forgot that you put these two hydraulic cylinders here, and that's where he's like, well, I don't know. And it's amazing because the really good engineers and the uh-huh. ones that would – and I was only there for was about three years, but there was a couple engineers that started when I'd started, and you could just see them progress. And, and everybody at the end, um, before the company went under, you know, there's certain guys where you wanted to be on their projects because, like, oh, I hope I get his package because <laughs> yep, he's going to yep. come down. He, first of all, it'll be better because he has that field experience. Uh, but second of all, if there is an issue, I mean, things always come up that even the most skilled engineer or fabricator will miss. And um, come down there and, yeah, let's work this through. Let's get it all sorted out. Uh, man, those guys are a dream to work with. So that sounds like... That's kind of what you did too, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, you get a lot, a lot of experience and you learn real quickly what works and what doesn't work. And you, you also learn that the only thing consistent about any sort of design is change. And you mm-hmm. have to be able, be able to adapt with that and change uh, with what the project needs. Um, so it's really, really good experience. That's cool. And you still work there? Yeah, I still work there. So I started out designing and then I moved... Um, about two years into that, I moved into a management role where I started, where I took over a group of designers and I started, you know, mentoring them and, and doing, you know, all sorts of different management tasks. And then, uh, and about a year into that, half year into that, I still, I missed designing things. And, um, 
that's where I started designing things for myself and mm-hmm. kind of got into designing uh, knife grinders because I was I was working with a colleague of mine there. Um, he designs like fighting style knives, some really cool uh, knives, um, but definitely not my style. Uh, mm-hmm. I do more. I like more kitchen knives, so I wanted to make kitchen knives. So I went over to his house. He's got a KMG grinder, and you know it was a really good grinder. Um, he modded it himself, so you know I had the forward and reverse, and he was able to set it up himself. So it was a, it was a pretty nice setup for a KMG uh, back in the day. Um, but when I started looking for my own grinder, I was like, man, I really like the you know the ability to to be vertical and horizontal because I don't have much room in in my my one car garage that I still mm-hmm. like to park a car in. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I need to figure out a way to make this smaller. And I don't like how, you know, some of the machines, when you tilt them, the VFD moves with the with the machine. I think that's kind of like a safety hazard because you have to reach under or buy a belt or, you know, you're, you're not easily able to shut off a machine if something was to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of took those thoughts and started developing um, a shaker, or sorry, not a shaker, a grinder, <laughs> a grinder around those those principles, and uh, and uh, so I can get that that same design experience while I was managing that group. And then I developed the first grinder, uh, which J.R. Summerhill from, if you know him, he was on Forge and Fire, and he won okay. one 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 of the shows. And it, you know, it showed him going back to his shop and working and, and I saw my grinder and we were, my wife and I, we don't have cable or anything. So when we go on vacation, usually in the hotel room, we'll, we'll watch. And that's when I usually get to watch Forge and Fire. And, yeah. uh, I saw that on there and I was like, Rihanna, Rihanna, check this out. <laughs> I was so happy. That's crazy. Yeah. And you didn't, and you didn't necessarily put him and your grinder together before then? No. Yeah. Or did you know that? I didn't. Or did, like, did you know he was one of your customers? Um, so I sold that first grinder on eBay uh, to kind of help set up some seed money for the second development and in, in the design. Uh, that first grinder just used tubes and a dry plate that were kind of welded together. And it had okay. uh, this bar that came out the front uh, that you would push down on it and then rotate the machine over. So it had a single tube set up uh, for one tooling arm. Uh, the mm-hmm. the main problem I found out with that design is the tubes. You can't get seamless tubes in the right size. Uh, oh, okay. And so you have to mill a slot into the into the tooling arm for it to be able to put the tooling arm in and out. Um, other than that, it was a pretty solid machine. Uh, you know, you learned learned some things uh, with that first design, um, but it it was pretty good. And then I took that design, that machine itself, and I took it over to Bruce Bump here in Walla Walla, Washington. And Bruce Bump is a master bladesmith. His stuff is just amazing. Check out like brucebumpknives.com. Uh, okay. His his stuff is just like, it'll blow your mind. He makes like these knife gun hybrid things, you know, that kind of complexity oh, wow. and, and stuff like that. And we're, yeah. we're working on a folder knife for him right now, helping him through the design so we can get parts machined and laser cut. And he's going to do all the Damascus steel blades. They, they look really, really cool. Um, wow. But I took it over to him and he's like, you know, why don't you do this and this and, you know, different things you have to think about. And so I took that advice and then I went back and pretty much redesigned the whole machine again. And every design process, I estimate it takes me about 40 hours to do. 
So I'm about 80 hours deep into this design where we came up with, uh, I wanted to have two tooling slots. I wanted mm. the, uh, the dry plate to be a bit beefier. Um, and I wanted the base to be a bit, bit beefier and uh, came out with this design where we, the tooling arms were really the main, the main thing in the development is the tooling arms, the tooling arm slot locations. Uh, they've changed consistently. <laughs> um, hmm. So I went to a beat, bent piece of sheet metal that was like clamshell together with a shelf in the middle um, that you weld up all yep. those and then you weld it to a dry plate. Um, and that kind of confirmed some of the suspicions I had on the first grinders. When you start welding, it starts to pull heat uh, on one side of the metal, which makes it in tension or compression. And then it will start to bend the metal on the opposite mm -hmm. side, unless you do some sort of um, secondary uh, heating on the opposite side to to make it come back into square. But even that's not even perfect. Um, mm -hmm. And then the problem was we couldn't get the, the, the die um, at the corners of the sheet metal sharp enough so we had uh, quite a bit of clearance around the tooling arms, but at least you didn't have to mill them out, which was a which was a plus. Um, yeah. So you know, some more learnings on that. I made about ten of those grinders and sold them on Craigslist, and I had one for um, you know about a year while I was doing all that and trying to work through uh, you know what I wanted this to be. At that point, um, it wasn't really a company yet. I kind of knew that I wanted to do something to learn about how to start a small business, how to run a company. Um, you know, some of those things you don't get in the management side where you get to work with people and work with designs and stuff. You know, I wasn't really in the upper level management like CEO where you get to work about money, operational costs, you know, what high level decisions that affect your company. Um, so I kind of wanted to learn about that. So after I got the seed money from the second generation design, I went to the third generation design and that's where um, I really started down the routes of of uh, giving it a name, Black Fox Knifeworks. And I had another coworker develop that little fox logo for me. Um, cause we mm -hmm. we at Kiwi um, we employ a lot of industrial designers as like cheap engineers, which isn't which isn't fair okay. to them, I think, because uh, we ask them to do a lot of things that engineers do and translate, you yep. know, all these set of rules that we have into a machine that costs you know a couple hundred thousand dollars so a lot of them are like yeah i want to design industrial equipment but you know this is like a way bigger task than what i was trained for um yeah but yeah. uh he, he developed the little uh black fox logo for me which is fantastic and i made him a knife i made like this little i call it camp chef knife uh uh, kind of a multi-purpose knife that I was kind of playing around with. And uh, so we did that kind of trade on that. And then from there, so that was Gen 2. So Gen 3, uh, I took all those lessons that I learned from all of those uh, past generations. And, and that's where I came up with the design that you have, um, where I started using uh, spacer blocks, a plate on one side and a plate on the other side, and then bolting those together. And uh, with mm -hmm. the integrated VFD in the base to make it smaller, uh, more robust. So when you turn the machine, you know, you don't have to worry about mounting a second VFD, you know, either on the motor or off to the side. You know, everything's kind of there wrapped up into one. It's easier for the customers to um, install. So all you have to do is take the motor wire, twist tie a couple of wires together and you're good to go. 
so I think it's I think that was like mm-hmm. you know the really groundbreaking moment of our design was you know putting all that VFD and figuring that all putting it in the base as well as you know the no well design which I am a huge proponent of now um, and then we also worked with some slightly different vendors from uh, Gen two to Gen three to help us get the dry plates flatter. And uh, so we went from a fab shop, which, you know, does laser cutting and stuff like that. Um, I know whatever, for whatever reason, their plate that they were getting in was, uh, it was okay, but it had way more, it was at like at the upper end of the tolerance of plate tolerance when it came in. Oh, really? Yeah. So I worked with a shop locally and Wall Wall, a machine shop, and he was able to get in much better plate from the uh, factory, uh, which I think, I saw a huge improvement on, on uh, mm. the flatness of that plate in particular. So now you don't have to do a second operation where you're trying to flatten the plates and get them back into flatness. And then, yeah. So with that, um, you know, we found a lot of of tolerance. So tolerancing is like the big thing. If you if you start stacking tolerances on top of each other, you start you start adding things and adding things. All those things are going to have different tolerances. So if you can take all that away. And you can just reference off of one thing, then your tolerances stacking is much less. And so yeah. to have a grinder running forward and reverse, you need to have the minimal amount of tolerances um, that you can from the yeah. attachment all the way to the drive. I think I, I require about a 64th difference in angle or you know anything. So you're able to run that that in forward and reverse and get little movement between forward and reverse. Um, I don't think that a lot of, a lot of knife grinder manufacturers out there, I think they just provide you with forward. They don't even say, you know, that they want to run them in reverse because of that, that problem. They don't run well in reverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I've seen a lot of people do, uh, they'll do like a little swivel, mm-hmm. uh, on like the axis of the tracking wheel. Yep. Yeah. Control. And I, yeah. And then again, that's just to compensate for the discrepancies. Exactly. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because as I hear you talk about this, like with the flatness of the plate, that's something that like until you said that, I would never have imagined that would matter, right? Yeah. Um, and, and just to see the issues. On the one hand, though, like when we used to do the airport conveyors, we'd get those, um, they, they called them a pallet loop, and it looks like those half moons mm-hmm. that bring your luggage out at airports. Um, those, most of the ones that we used to do were three-eighths steel plate that was laser cut. And my job when I'd started with this company, this airport conveyor company, was to straighten those plates out. So it is funny because that's the last time I've ever, ever thought about the flatness of steel plate. But it's true. And I remember, I remember we'd switch suppliers, and and sometimes like we'd watch these sheets be cut, and as it was finishing the cut, all of a sudden the whole sheet would kind of like spring up because it had tension in it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of how, how a lot of that depends on how it's processed in the mills, but that's really really interesting. Um, see, like using that grinder, I would never have thought about the plate. And I know there's a plate there, but I thought, oh yeah, I have the steel plate. But it's really kind of interesting when you you get down to the nitty gritties, and and that's probably why too. Like I mean, I've mentioned to you uh, for those listening that don't know, I have you sent me one of your grinders, mm-hmm. and my plan for it was to have it as more of a delicate grinder Mm -hmm. just because the fact that it's all nice and crispy and clean, right? And everything works so good. So I was going to use that for like handle work. And then I was going to use my KMG um, that I've modified. I mean, I've got a direct drive on it now, Um, but I was going to use that strictly for grinding bevels. 
But then I thought, well, I'm just going to try a few knives, doing some bevels. And I, I like, I even sent you a message, and I said, I don't know what it is about this grinder, but it's different. Yeah, yeah. And it, I can't even really, you know, when you use it, you can tell the difference. And the KMGs, I mean, it's, it's a good staple grinder, right? I don't think people um, really dispute the fact that it's not like I'm using a junky grinder. It's oh, not like I've got some, yeah. some terrible homemade thing and I've switched to a professional. I mean, I had a good grinder and then I went to your grinder and I just, it was weird. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it's like, this thing just somehow feels tighter and and that that could be like the accumulation to all those little details that you fuss over yeah so when i when i design something it's i can't design like on the fly i gotta have like everything laid out in front of me it's like i get paralysis by analysis if i try to go on the fly and i get caught caught up in different things and it's just terrible for me and you listen to your your interview with bob rakett i was like oh man i can't do that everything has to be like (laughs) laid out perfectly and and before I can even get started. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting just That's different funny. processes we have. Yeah, I'm exactly the opposite. Like, if I'm going to make something, I don't want to, I, w- I don't even want to draw a picture of it. I just, like, when I, I made my first grinder, um, and, I mean, that was terrible. I did it with parts I could find in my garage. Um, but anything I make, I'll go buy, if I know what steel I want to make it out of, I'll go buy it and then... Sometimes I almost don't even measure things. <laughs> like I'll say, this looks like the length, and then I'll take that piece, and that'll be my new measurement. I'm like, okay, I need four this size, and is it 12 inches at 14? I'm not sure. It's around there, <laughs> but it's interesting how, how different people approach things. And like like you said, that would drive you nuts. Yeah. And I'm the same way with the drawings. That's probably probably why I'm not making and selling really nice knife grinders to people. <laughs> On the flip side, it takes me forever to get a knife done. Like I start out in in the 3D program, I lay it all out. Then I go to 3D printing it so I can kind of get a feel of it here, you know, lay it out on wood and cut it out so I can get a feel of it. And then from there, I start to, you know, go into bigger pieces of wood to figure out how I like the feel when it's fully, you know, dimensioned and everything. And then then I go into the actual making of it. That's cool. So how many knives do you make? You do the knife making as a hobby? Yeah. So um, let's see here. I started making grinders in 2016. Uh, 2016, 2017 is about when we officially established the business. So we've been doing this for about three years, um, officially. And, you know, when we first started out, I was doing a lot of knives on the side, maybe 10 to 15 year, 10 to 15 a year, which is, I think a pretty high number for somebody that's working full time and doing a side business Mm -hmm. as well as doing a knife. And then as the years have gone by, orders have increased and I have been able to make a knife probably for a couple months now. Yeah, yeah. Probably since, no, probably probably almost about a year since I made my last knife, which is really unfortunate because I really like the process. Uh, mm-hmm. I did have my brother over, and he was helping me. He came up from California to help me get through a whole mess of orders because um, when you go through this whole process of getting manufacturers and vendors lined up, you know, you tell them, okay, I want this, and they say, okay, it's going to take four to six weeks to get it you know, through our shop. So then you have to wait four to six weeks. And sometimes with COVID that extends out even further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I started, I started taking pre-orders in January and I was hoping to have, you know, grinder parts into February and start making a March, April, May and get caught up. Um, but man, with COVID, it, it just really slowed everything down. Uh, and, you know, four, four to six weeks turned into eight to 10 weeks. And then, you know, orders started building up, building up. And I just started feeling bad for keeping, you know, people's money and their orders and everything. Mm-hmm. And so I had my brother come up from California and help me 
for about a week uh, just trying to get grinders done. And at the same time, uh, within the next two weeks, we were supposed to move to Spokane for my wife to start law school up here at uh, Gonzaga. So it was just like this chaos for a couple, couple about a month and a half of just trying to build grinders, then, then pack up the shop and then move it to Spokane, then unpack it and then try to get caught up on, on orders. And I think I'm today I finally built up the last grinder we officially have on order. Wow. I know I have more orders coming from, from different people. But while he was here, I, uh, I traded a grinder uh, at Blade Show West uh, two years ago to a guy in Canada that collects anvils. So he got oh, me okay. this big, beautiful, like 350-pound anvil. It's huge. It's, oh, it's, wow. Yeah, it's like a $1,600 anvil is from what I could find. And uh, so I, my wife's like, it's not an actual knife unless you forge it. And I've been doing a lot of stock <laughs> removal. I was like, oh, man, you're so mean. She's like, you got this anvil. You got to use it. So, That's funny. I, I had, you know, I'd been trying to make, you know, leaves, you know, from, um, yeah. Alex Steele's video and they were turning out pretty good. And then, and then, you know, I tried to make a knife came out like a blob. So I just left it, you know, you know, with me, I can't visualize it. I, I like to design it first, but when yeah. something doesn't go right, it's, it's tough for me to correct and everything, but I'm starting to work through that. Yeah. Uh, so when my brother was here, we wanted to forge a couple of knives. So we made a couple of knives. He likes Scandi knives. So he made a Scandi knife. And then I made this uh, really small knife that I've been working on. It looks like a piece of crap. It wasn't, uh, I'm still not done with it. I've got the, we got the blades quenched and everything and the ground in and everything. And uh, so all I need to do is just put on the handle and uh, you know, I'm doing a hidden tang for the first time. So I'm kind of working through that okay. process too. But uh, as soon as I get these grinders out, um, I think I'll have about four weeks until I get the next round of parts from my vendors before I can start building. So I'm hoping I can get uh, at least one or two knives done in that yep. time frame. Right on. Yeah. Um, I did some forging this weekend and about as easy forging as you could ever do. I just took some half inch uh, stock, some half inch solid bar stock. Mm-hmm. And this is just like hot rolled steel. And all I really did was taper like one end, about four inches, taper it down to almost a point. And then I kind of bent a little hook in it. And then I I put the rest of it one big arch. Um, so basically this thing kind of bolts to our, our posts, our columns on our front porch. And then it's like a, a pot hanger for hanging flower pots or whatever. And so simple, like just tapering one end down. And then at the other end, after I put the big arch in, it's about, I don't know, about a 10 inch radius, a 10 inch diameter curve in this thing that I'd flatten it out so that I could drill some holes and put some screws. And I thought this would take me about two hours to get them all done, two to three. And I ended up spending the last two Saturdays and unbelievable, like just the amount of work it is to forge stuff. Yeah, it's it's I have so much respect and it's one of these things, you know, there's always that debate is that, you know, the real knife thing. I completely disagree with your wife. Your wife. I know. Yeah, same um, here. <laughs> but I, at the same time, I like it's funny when people say that because it is it is kind of a funny thing to poke at people. But um, my goodness, it's just so much extra work to get to a usable blade, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was thinking when I was out there, I, but like a we were talking earlier, it's pretty hot here right now. This is like the, the heat of our summer. And so I was getting going like seven o'clock in the morning, you know, I was already had some, some metal heating up so I could beat the heat. And man, I was like, I need a power hammer. <laughs> I want to build yeah. a tire hammer or something. Yeah. Cause, oh, it's incredible how much work it is, but it turned out good, but it's, it's a lot of fun, you know? 
I saw those on Instagram. I was like, I got to do that now. It's like, it's such a good idea. So I wrote down half inch bar stock on a piece of paper here. I'm going to do that. Yeah. (laughs) I filmed the whole thing. Like I haven't, I haven't done many YouTube videos, but I filmed everything. So I might be putting a voiceover up, I think in the next couple of days here. That'd be awesome. Um, I'll just wait for the comments. (laughs) (laughs) The the reason I have to do a voiceover is because I need to put the explanation saying, I'm not a blacksmith. I'm, I'm not good at doing this. And, (laughs) and even if, if I were to call the video like forged, uh, plant hangers. So many people would be offended by that because I didn't really forge much, right? Yeah. Like, like, I actually textured. Really, there's like four inches on one end and four inches on the other end that you're actually working on, and the rest is just you know steel as it came from the mill. Mm-hmm. So I know there's gonna be a lot of haters that are gonna, oh, you didn't really forge that. You should have drawn it out. But whatever. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, they they came out. They look really nice. It's amazing how they dressed up the front of the house there. Um, yeah, they look really good. Yeah, and there's a. A lot of sweat equity, and my wife's like, I didn't know, know that would be that much work, because <laughs> yeah, most of, most of the ones you can buy at like at the box stores, I mean, it looks like just tin, you know, like just sheet metal that they cut strips and they put scrolls into it, and it's like, man, you pay like twenty bucks for one of those, I may as well make my own, but yeah, no, they, yep. they turned out good, it was fun. So a three hundred pound anvil you got, like three fifty. Yeah, um, I don't know the name of it. I had to go look it up, but yeah, it's okay. a it's it's a big. Maybe it's 350 kilograms, so it should be, you know, 175, I think about. Yeah. Uh, 150, 175. All I know is I can't move it on my own. I need <laughs> I need a lot yeah. of help. But yeah, it's it's a big, big beast of an anvil. That's cool. Do you want to start moving that way? Like do more forged knives? Yeah, I, I, I really like Sanmai knives. And so mm. I was fortunate enough, my wife and I, to, to go to Japan a couple years ago and and um, we didn't go to the knife capital, Seki City, but we were able to go around the different areas and the different knife shops. And and I really like uh, Sanmai construction. So I would like to do a stainless steel um, outer jacket with a um, hard, you know, hardenable um, core for mm-hmm. the blade. Because I think that's kind of like the best of both worlds to where people in the U.S., you know, they don't really take care of knives all that well. So if you send them a yeah. full carbon knife you know the chances of them of it rusting on them and not being happy with it it's pretty high um but you know this knife i got in japan it's a stainless steel jacket carbon core so the only part that rusts is right along the edge and you know as you sharpen that or you can get rust erasers and you can correct that if you're not careful with uh with washing it and drying it right away you know even even my wife i'm like you gotta wash and dry this right away yeah she's still not good but uh um you know, I think that's like the perfect combination of, of having the fine edge and the easy sharpenability and then having the ability to um, resist rust uh, as well. So I, I want to get into yeah. that and do more of that. And I think, you know, Damascus steels are just super pretty. Um, I don't know if I probably need a press to get into that, but I think I could do San Mai by hand. I mm-hmm. want to see. <laughs> yeah, I've heard I've heard people do it. Um, there's actually a local gentleman to me that did some. Um, and I agree with you. I love San Mai and especially the fact that like some of the, I've actually bought some knives, um, that were made from makers like at the Takafu knife village or whatever it is in Japan. Mm-hmm. And they'll leave their inner core sometimes like as high as like 65 mm-hmm. on the Rockwell scale. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if your, if your entire blade was like that and you looked at it wrong, it could crack, you know, but because they got that, that cladding, it's not only for rust, it also gives it, um, you know, that protection. Yeah. So if you were to drop it, maybe you'd just chip off a little bit of the, 
the cutting edge or the tip of the knife and not crack the entire blade. Yeah, it's um, a lot with those Japanese swords. I mean, if you look look at the, the books of the Japanese swords, they they layer their steel in just some crazy ways to get the, the strength aspects they need out of that sword. And I don't, I don't know how they do it, but it's it's amazing to, when yeah. you look at you know how they tried to layer their steel in there. Yeah, that's cool. And then I was wondering, so with the COVID and your grinder business, obviously like, you know, supply chains and stuff like that. Like one thing I'm having a problem with is just getting like replacement cartridge filters for my, my breast, my face mask. (laughs) Um, have you found like a lot of things, uh, things I'm into like bicycles as well as yourself, um, Around here, every bike shop is completely sold out. <laughs> like yeah. You can't buy bicycles. Did you find people were like, hey, I'm going to get a grinder due to the fact that maybe they have more time now or they're like, maybe the world's going to end and <laughs> I don't want to live my life without trying to make knives or something? Have, yeah. have you noticed more interest because of uh, COVID? It's it's kind of interesting. Originally, I thought that you know, with, with the financial crash that people would be starting to save more and... Uh, maybe cancel some of the orders that, that were out there. I only had one order cancellation, but I think I had far more orders um, than I would normally have. And I think that's just due to people, you know, they have extra time on their hands. They want to get into knife making and, uh, mm-hmm. and they want to, and they want to get a grinder. So I was kind of surprised by that. I was expecting orders to go down. They actually went up. Um, and I was like, oh, man, okay, we're moving at the right time. Orders are going to go down. I'm going to have a bit more time yeah. being settled. But know that it didn't happen. <laughs> but uh, but we're finally caught up, so it's starting to feel really good now. But the yeah. main problem with COVID was um, when everything shut down, there was a lot of confusion. You know, am I essential? Am I not? Um, you know, how does, like, a machine shop prioritize non-essential business over essential business? Yeah. Um, and so that that stretched out because i think we were usually machine shop goes you four to six weeks to get the parts done we were right about the five week mark when everything shut down so there was an extra one to two weeks trying to figure that out and then another one to two weeks to get tool back up so i went from four to like eight weeks and it's just like oh man get me these parts please <laughs> yeah yeah no kidding mm-hmm. and so what like do you get your your wheels made for you uh, so the wheels, I tried to buy as many common components. That way we're not having to redesign, you know, the wheel. Yeah, that makes <laughs> yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we buy most of our wheels um, from uh, vendors and, you know, knife grinder parts. They do a really good tracking wheel and drive wheel. So that's where we get those wheels. Okay. And um, I really want to do a contact wheel that is made in the U.S., uh, and not made in China, and it doesn't cost you an arm and leg because it's machined out of a billet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is going to be a challenge. Um, it's definitely something I want to work through in the future, and that will probably be our design casted and then rubbered, and then we'd have to send it out to a balancer. Uh, so there's a lot of steps steps in the process, but I'd hope yeah. that it would be our design. And then, and then even on the tracking and dry wheels, I do want to improve on the design, do some like, uh, I don't know if you know what micro grooving is in a tracking belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they'll, they'll make these little tiny grooves and it'll, and it'll put air separation between the belt and the wheel. It's not necessarily for cooling like some people think it is. And I think, you know, some people market it that way. Okay. It is actually to create an air pocket between the wheel and the uh and the belt so that you get better tracking. It doesn't stick as much. Oh, okay. 
That makes sense. So you can, you know, every little adjustment's going to move right away. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And so is that, um, like, is that what you're thinking the next improvements are, the next generation? You're going to go with some changes like that? Yes. I think the grinder has built, um, so from your design, we went to the Gen 4 where we started casting the tooling arm slots. So now that, that whole piece, instead of doing the, the spacers and the plate mm-hmm. on one side, that is now like a single cast piece. Okay. bolted on ears and that's bolted to the dry plate i think yep. that design looks really cool because we're able to do countersinks on the dry plate and bolt on this cast piece so it looks like a a single piece of machined you know part there there's no yeah. whole head sticking out it looks i think you know this design it's it's working out really well and then doing the casting obviously we have to pay for the tooling which is quite a bit up front but uh, we're able to get part costs down um so originally you know we were going uh, I think we were selling them for twenty six thousand on the Black Fox one. Now we're down to twenty five, just with with minor adjustments and you know our processes and paying for this tooling um, mm-hmm. to spread the cost out over a larger quantity. So I'd really like to get down to the two thousand dollar mark. Um, but man, it's it's been really tough. You know, back in when was it? Uh, two thousand and twelve, two thousand sixteen, when we had all this tariff wars going on. Oh yeah. Metal prices skyrocketed. And that's right when I went from, I think into the gin three, I, I was doing one of the grinders and I got back the POs and they were like the quotes and they were like, you know, 25% more. And it's like, Oh my goodness. You know, I'm not going to yeah. ever get this. Um, so we've done some costs, cost saving improvements. I think that to help with the grinder um, and get the cost down, but you know, we were only able to get down a hundred bucks as opposed to, 600 which i still yeah. think is a, is a minor win you know anywhere we can help save money for people down the road i think is always good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah uh the cost of steel is unbelievable you know yeah um we always knew it when we we're doing the airport stuff because everything we build for them all of our conveyors were all made of steel and like you said the prices are always going up and sometimes huge jumps like sometimes we'll all you know, we're worried about profit on a, on a project we bid the year before we get the contract. And when the airport's finally ready for us to come, you know, the steel's like twice or three times what it was almost. Um, Mm -hmm. and then in the airline industry we had ultimately what's the goal of that industry is to make flying cheaper. Right. Yep. So we were manufacturing steel parts for the airlines and it was just a squeeze. It was crazy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I think my dad's done well with that business to to keep it going. I, I think our margins like we're five. We were like five percent profit on jobs. Some, even sometimes when those slow, we go two percent. That's tough. And that was like a three four million dollar job. Yeah, and it was like wow, it's crazy. And we were uh, very very tight there. Like there wasn't there wasn't any sloppiness. There wasn't any room for <laughs> goofing around. I mean, when you order the parts, you made sure you ordered the right ones. To, but um. That's crazy. Yeah. Just the other day, I got an email from my motor supplier and those lease and motor, the two horsepower motors we've been doing, we've been getting, they put a cost increase of about uh, 50 bucks on each motor starting late August. So I had to order, you know, 15, 20 motors today. It's a big 3,000, 4,000, you know, dollar check. (laughs) Yeah. Just so I can keep the cost low for as long as I can while I try to figure out, you know, something else to go with, or if we do try to eat that cost or where do we put that cost? Cause 50 bucks is mm-hmm. not nothing. Yeah, no. 
And it's like like you're talking about with um, you know tolerances. Every little tiny bit adds up, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing with the dollar signs to all these parts and components. Yeah. Um, and you like the one thing I'll say. So for the viewers that are listening to this and may have never seen the grinder, strongly recommend you check them out. Um, I'm going to be doing a full review review video on the one that you'd sent me. But the thing I like the most about your grinder, and I think, well, there's a lot of things I like about it, but it's such a, like a compact little package mm-hmm. um, that it it's the, the space that it takes on whatever workbench you sit it on is so small. And then like with the way that it are, kind of articulates, you know, when I did, I kind of added a hinge basically on the base plate that my KMG was <laughs> mounted on <laughs> so yeah. I could get horizontal. But then I literally just took, a, you know, the entire height of it and I just leaned it over on its side. So basically I had to, you know, if I put it horizontal, I have to move over and stand about 16 inches to the left, yeah. right? And then when I bring it back and so the work area that I needed for that machine grew. You know, if it's just vertical, whatever, I mean, it, it's... No grinder's really huge if you make it small, but I think you've done an amazing job at getting an articulating grinder that's easy to to switch back and forth, and it all sits on this. What, what's the footprint of those? That's got to be like 12 by 12 or something. Yeah, it, it is fairly small. The, the yeah. base is small. Yeah. 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 And then also, for those that, that may not have picked it up, the VFD is actually mounted in the base. So you've got your control dials, your switches right in front of you, and like you said, whether you're in horizontal or vertical that component doesn't change and it's and that's an, i think it's a like you'd mentioned the safety thing too you know you get into the habits of a machine mm-hmm. right um you know after a few days on on the grinder you don't look at where the start stop is as opposed to the main power right the first time i'd accidentally turn the main power switch off um but once you get used to it and that's a safety thing you know so when you can have the controls in the exact same spot Either way, like whether you're vertical or horizontal, it's really nice that, oh man, something went wrong or a belt's about to break. I can reach down and hit that and it's always in the same place, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's great. It's a wonderful, wonderful grinder. I really enjoy it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think with the controls there, you're able to also expand it because now you control what you can put in it, what you can output from it. And uh, having all the controls localized, you're not putting different switches in different locations. So... Uh, that was another goal of mine. I think it's worked out quite well. Mm-hmm. And then let's, why don't we kind of talk about all of the kind of features and accessories, um, just just for people listening so they kind of understand what we're talking about. The one thing I really like what you've done, your Platin has got a very interesting uh, adjustment mechanism in it. So typically, I think what most people do is they've got some type of an angle bracket, like a piece of angle iron or something, and that obviously goes like to the side plate and then the Platin. And then, whereas yours, you've actually got, like, they're almost like standoff screws. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's just a quarter 20 with uh, two nuts, so you stand off the platen from the angle iron. That mm-hmm. way you can get something like a file guide in from both sides, and you're not hitting the the L brackets, because I, I yeah. use a file guide, and I was like, man, this is annoying. It is. <laughs> I gotta it's change a, this. <laughs> I know, that's a game changer. I was like... Uh, KMG, I can't. I, you know, especially like I've got this one barbecue knife, and I have a very uh, angled plunge line, and so when I come in on it, I end up hitting like the bolts on my bracket, and it's it's incredible. I was using the KMG, and I was like, well, wait a minute, let me try this one. I'm like, oh, look at that. So that's a brilliant feature. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you've done that I really like is that you already have um, holes tapped for a shelf if you wanted to do a glass platen. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I really like that about it. And then there's some other things. One of the arms that you've done was the disc sander arm. Yes. This is kind of something I, you know, I was looking for a disc sander at the time and I didn't really want to pay a thousand dollars when I already had the motor and the VFD. So I started trying to think about how I could develop the disc sander attachment for a grinder mm-hmm. so you can use it in the vertical and horizontal um, positions. And this this is kind of something we came out with uh, where you take a five inch drive wheel, pretty much bolt it to a, a nine inch plate um, and then turn those both together. So you're able to uh, you got to bolt them together, then turn them. Um, so that everything comes out round Mm -hmm. and they're coming out. Okay. I would say, uh, I probably have to eat probably half my inventory though on those. Okay. Uh, Some, some didn't come out because, um, if you get them bolted together and then they slip it all or the aluminum expands for some reason, it doesn't expand how you want it to, even during like the heat, like hot days, you know, get Mm. pretty hot in the shop, even like up to 130 or something like that. Um, they, they kind of come out of round, uh, but, you know, the ones that are stable, I've been sending those out, but I'll, I'll probably have to eat half and then I'll probably come up with a different design that is more stable, either casting the whole piece or something. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of been a fun attachment because I know that that is a need uh, that needs to be filled and nobody else is doing it yet. So that's kind of what I, I focus on. Like if there's there's an attachment that's already out there, I encourage people to go get it like the rotary plot. And I think that thing's amazing from KMG. And then I think... You know, so some of the other manufacturers have have started making their own. But I, I like to try to think of what isn't out there. What can you not get that you would want? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of how I start to develop my tooling for uh, the grinder. Yeah. And um, like I haven't used that disc grinder too much. But when because I, I already have I put together a disc grinder a couple years ago. Um, so, yeah. So essentially it's a tooling arm and you stick it in there and, and you use a grinding belt, like your regular yep. two by 72 belt as the drive belt. And then you mm-hmm. can glue your sanding discs right onto there. That's brilliant. That's a great idea. Cause like you say, I mean, first of all, if you're uh, constrained by space in your shop, uh, but then from a financial standpoint, you know, like it's a, it's one less VFD and it's one less motor you need to buy. Exactly. Yep. Those are the most yeah. expensive parts on any grinder, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I noticed on Instagram you were working on you're you're making it available the what's that for for uh, grinding integral bolster bolsters? Yeah, so we came out uh, so back at Blade Show West um, last year. I was talking to Dan Keefler. He came over to my booth and we got started talking. He's like, I need something that grinds these plunge lines in my swords, and I've been using two um, small wheel attachments and then a plate between them but it's just not doing the job because they move around, you know, and you can't quite get them square enough. And so I, I got talking with him and I was like, yeah, I can figure something out. And, you know, he wanted to pay for any sort of costs that came out of this. And I was like, well, you know, hold on, let's see if we can, we can develop this attachment that's more wide range and that way we can get more customers involved. And then, you know, I just pretty much, you just have to pay what it costs me to make it. And I'll give you one for free if you want a second one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we came came up with this um, this idea to put a small wheel, a platen face, and then another wheel. He wanted another small wheel, but I went with like a two-inch wheel. Mm-hmm. That way it gives it a bit more versatility, and you don't need another small wheel if you already have one. And as long as you make the platen um, reversible, so you're able to put the small wheel at the bottom or at the top. Oh, okay. Uh, you can build it up both ways. 
And so I sent that to um, him to check out. And he's actually pretty, lives pretty close to me. He's, um, I think, in central Washington, uh, north central Washington. So he was able to come down to my shop, pick up, he actually picked up a grinder and two of those small wheel attachments and started testing for them, them for me. And then I sent the third one um, to Bob and uh, had him test it on integrated bolsters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during the design phase, I also sent the design to Firehouse Forge. He's up in Seattle and he does a lot of beautiful integrated um, bolstered kitchen knives. And, you know, I wanted this to be able to when you're forged, when you got that bolster forged out, just take this, clean up your bolsters, make it flush with the blade. And um, and it makes it really simple and easy just to clean all that up. Um, with with the addition of having you know the plat and, and then the two inch wheels, if you want to do a di- different things with it really quickly, um, uh, without having to change tooling over, then you could do that because a big portion of you know making knives is you're changing tooling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's worked out really good. I think uh, really good positive feedback from all the testing. I personally haven't had to test it, which has been kind of a bummer because I've been so busy making knives, but uh, these guys have all said good things about it. So just waiting on more two inch wheels to come in and then I should have about 25 ready to go. Oh, wow. Right on. Cool. Is there any, uh, what's, what's in the future, any new significant changes or maybe there's things you don't want to say, or is it pretty much just kind of keep up with this rendition of the grinder and, and keep plugging along? Yeah. Um, so, you know, learn about business, you have to be able to expand your portfolio if you want to make more money, you know, uh, so you, so with grinders, you make the grinder and then you make the attachments. Uh, so we've got all of our attachment product lines. We got the surface grinder, the disc sander, the platen, the small wheel platen that just came out. And then, you know, you have other things that you want to do. Uh, one of them, you know, you've seen all these articulating work rests. I kind of want to do something like that, but do it differently. Okay. Instead of having a tube joint, you would have a ball joint. Oh, wow. That way it gives you way more flexibility. Um, the only thing you have to really be careful of there is if you can get your ball joint to cinch down enough to hold what you want, how much weight you want to put on the attach, on the uh, workrest arm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something we've been we've been developing and playing with. Um, something like, uh, have you ever checked out those Manfrotto magic arms? Yeah, kind of for like cameras and stuff. Yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah. I kind of checked out. I checked out a lot of those things and and kind of looked at the technology behind all that. And I want to try to replicate that into some sort of uh, uh, adjustable plot or workrest. That would be cool. That'd be really neat. Yeah, because seen... I know that those are well, like a big. I think a big demand right now is those adjustable workrests. And then yeah. We also came out with the, the stand for our grinder, which you're able to put tooling arm slots in and out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on like a single pedestal, so you're not hitting your feet on different things. Um, there's a few other things that I want to want to get out there. It takes a lot of money to develop something properly. Yeah. And I know in like the first few years, um, we were really developing and then selling, which is not ideal because then you get maybe some unhappy customers because... You know, the performance isn't what they want because it is a development project you're still learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think moving forward, we're finally at the point to where I can, you know, pour a bit more money. We'll look at um, doing some independent testing and then we can roll out with a product is, you know, how it's supposed to go. Uh, but yeah, yeah, a lot of things I want to get done. 
not enough time or money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a story of story of life, isn't it? Yeah, that's cool. Was there anything else you'd want to cover? Uh, you want so, to talk about? Yeah, I think you know, for small businesses, uh, for you know, people starting to get into knife making, you know, how do I make that transition from hobby to a business? And just you know, some of the advice that I can give on on a small business is that. Um, uh, really look into tax codes and what you're doing uh, locally. Uh, I recommend, especially with knives and stuff, getting a business license. Um, even though it costs, you know, I think it cost me about a thousand dollars, and I did most of it myself to try to keep the cost down. Uh, to get a LLC, or you can do, you know, different all different different corporations, Corp A, Corp B. You can look into those. I think the the easiest one was an LLC and and not be a sole sole proprietor. Mm-hmm. The main difference between those and in the states is like an LLC. Um, if somebody were to come after you, let's say they cut their finger off with a knife or something, they were to come after your business and sue you. They could only come after your business and they couldn't come after you personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get a little bit of protection there. Um, and then looking into like tax codes. So if you're doing a lot of online shipments, there's been some interesting legislation that's been proposed in different lawsuits because a lot of our commerce is online now. So if you're shipping out of state, uh, your customer doesn't necessarily need to pay um, sales tax to be 100% legit. They're supposed to report that to the state and then pay sales tax on that, but nobody mm-hmm. does that. So the states are trying to get a piece of that money. And you look at some of the things that have gone on with eBay, and I think it was like South or North Dakota, where you know eBay was doing so much business into these states, and then they started to um, the leg- the um, there was a lawsuit where they had to pay so much of that money back to the state because it was you know over the threshold of of where you're doing business. So I think just be careful of that because I think in the future uh, with so much more online commerce, I think the states are going to try to start getting their sales tax implemented up front rather than um, after the fact, which nobody mm-hmm. reports. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of um, a lot of interesting things because in the states could be you know it's like shipping into a different country. Everybody's got their own sales tax, local sales tax. So it's just it can become a nightmare for somebody. And if I think that were to happen, it would shut down a lot of small businesses. I would just be like, yeah, it's not worth doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that that's yeah. really really good points because um you know I think so many people romanticize the idea of you know, being a full-time knife maker or starting a knife making business. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't want to necessarily come across cynical, but from somebody who was a hobby knife maker and then now I'm full-time um, and situations kind of dictated what I ended up doing, but I would rather be a hobby knife maker than a full-time knife maker. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, right now with, when I got laid off from, from Sanjel, I just said, hey, let's try selling knives rather than sit around and do nothing. Um, and it kind of took off from there. But I honestly would rather have that job back because it was a really good job and then just have this as a hobby thing. Uh, because the thing I think people probably need to hear more of that think, oh, I want to become a full-time knife maker. Knife making will become your job. Yep. And as much as like, I, and it takes a few years, maybe I think it took me two or three years of doing a full time to the point where it's like, well, now I have to, I have to go make these knives and I still do like it. Right? I mean, it's always, you got to kind of deliver this as carefully as possible. I still love making knives and I get excited <laughs> yeah. about knives and I love looking at knives, but, um, 
you know, if a customer won't, you know, I sell 10 of these knives, I've got to go make 10 of those knives. And as a hobbyist, it's kind of like you could start a project and be like, yeah, you know, I'm not feeling, I want to make a sword today. Right. And you can, yeah. you know, so it's, it's very interesting, the shift. And I, I think people really need to think about what that would be like before they're like, let's go full-time knife making. Cause that will be your job and your customers are now your boss, right? It's not mm-hmm. like you work for yourself. You work for your customers. Um, so yeah, it's definitely good advice. And then like you say too, I mean, half of having a knife making business is making knives. <laughs> you know, if you're lucky, it's 50%. Uh, yeah. the, a huge amount of work is like you say, with the taxes, with the paperwork and the online stuff. I know I have like online stores and stuff and I just have things set to, um, you know, whatever, whoever they're ordering from, do what they think the tax codes are for them. And then I have to consolidate and like, uh, like rectify it all at the end of the year, but at least we kind of get things sorted out, but it is so much work. And especially if you're not a person who loves that stuff, like myself, you really do need to go into it saying what well, doesn't matter what you're doing, whether it's knives or if you're going to buy mm-hmm. doodads from China and sell them at the market, you literally are going to be doing the paperwork to run a business, you know? Exactly. Um, and that's when you go uh, to, when you go to go price ahead. something, um, you know, you have to take that into account. Um, so, you know, it's what's called overhead. Yeah. And so if you're going to price your knife, you would take, you know, your steel, the belts that you need to use it. You could even count in the power, your time. And then you'd also have to count in, you know, overhead and try to spread that out on how many knives you're going to make a year and add that on to each knife, which then, you know, your, your knives would become probably more expensive than most people want to pay. But I mean, that is the cost of you doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like a grinder, you know, it's, 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 you know, the cost of the grinder itself is, um, somebody can go out there and make a grinder, um, themselves and go through this whole learning process. I probably spent, you know, $10,000 of my own money over four or five years, just figuring this out to where I could start, you know, making these things. But the cost of the grinder is so much more. It's like, it's the project management, it's the parts management, it's the, it's writing the POs, it's, you know making sure I stay on top of inventory and the website and taking photos and descriptions and, mm-hmm. you know, all that going on in the background, you know, and at some level it's going to be smaller for a knife maker because you're only working, working with steel and then your own designs and one customer at a time, or, you know, maybe you're just putting them on a website, but uh, all those things I think need to be taken into account to when you're pricing something to sell, because, you know, that is your time. That is mm-hmm. important. Um, it's time being taken away from, you know, family or other things uh, that could be done. Um, and I think, you know, you should be getting paid for that time. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and you have to be if you want it to be a sustainable business, you know. Um, I see a lot of people like go full time and they'll, they'll sell hunting knives for like 150 bucks. I'm like, man. Like, yeah. uh, unless you're just throwing something together, that's a really, but if you're doing your best possible work and you want to, you know, it was kind of like the same thing with photography when, with the advent of digital photography, everybody became a photographer, you know, and at the end, I mean, I was charging like five or $6,000 for a wedding and I'd have people ask me, you know, I'd want to book you for this day, I'd give my price and they'd be like, well, my cousin, she, she's a photographer. She does it for $300, you know, it's like, yeah. well, you should, yeah. you should get her then probably, you know, um, yeah. And it's a certain, I remember like kind of being in the the photography industry, the more people are like, oh, I'm just going to do it on the weekends for fun. I don't need to make much money. They just bring the entire industry down. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know there's a few camps on this, but I'm of the camp that I think people need to charge more for their knives. Mm -hmm. Um, 
if you, if you want a really good high quality knife that's not expensive, that's what Moras are for, right? Or that's what you go buy a buck for. I mean, you can buy a really mm-hmm. nice knife that's finished well. Uh, yeah, you might not get some of the the steels that that we can all have access to and and use sooner than a you know a company like Buck's going to start adopting, but they're good knives. You know, you buy a Mora for bushcrafting, it's twenty dollars. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And yeah, and it's like. It, you know, you want to make, you want one that's handmade. You got to pay for that. But yeah, no, it's very, very interesting. And something I, I think would be the best thing you could ever do if somebody's wanting to start a business is just sit down and have these real thoughts, you know, write the numbers down mm-hmm. before you start your business. Like what, what are you going to charge for a knife? What's it going to, what do you need to make to live off of, you know, and then add a little bit to that. Um, and then, you know, put, put all down on paper and say, okay, well, Based on these numbers, I'm going to have to charge $500 for a hunting knife. And, you know, even that might be a good indication of as to whether or not you should go. Is the market there? Will people pay that for your knives or, or not, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, market research and a business plan, I think, is is really important. Um, you know, I kind of went through that a couple years ago because um, there was a company actually interested in purchasing Black Fox quite a, quite a while ago because they wanted to expand, oh, really? expand their product line. So I went through that whole process with them. And it's actually really informational for myself. Um, and, uh, really gave me an idea of, of where I wanted to take the company and what I think, you know, the profits could be, uh, in the future and where I would need to be. Okay. If I wanted to quit my job full time, what would I have to make? How many grinders would I have to make? How could I supplement that income with different attachments and things like that? Um, so I think it's a really good exercise, um, to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, one thing I like to do, this might be something I'm just springing on you. So if you're not prepared, that's fine. I'm actually not prepared either. <laughs> but um, do, do, you, do you have anything you would recommend uh, to the listeners? It could be anything, a book, um, an Instagram, something you've learned. Hmm. Um, so... That's tough because I can approach this from many different ways. Engineering, um, if you want to look into engineering, I would say uh, start looking at uh, different, you know, if you want to go down that route, start looking at different course programs, kind of seeing what each college offers mm-hmm. and see see if that kind of fits your needs. Um, as far as knife making, let's keep it there. Uh, some people that I like to recommend um, on Instagram is Firehouse Forge. He does classes. So if you're in the Seattle area, um, I recommend go taking his class. I really want to do that. I was actually planning on taking his class in April, uh, going over there and, but you know, COVID hit. And so everything, everything kind of shut down. Yeah. But you know, if you wanted to get into knife making, I recommend taking class firehouse forge has, um, you know, get on Instagram, find, find those groups that are local to your area and find the people that, uh, that can teach you something. I mean, that's really how I got into it and how I got a feel and addicted to knife making really was a colleague was making them mm-hmm. went over to his house a couple times and was like okay this is awesome mm-hmm. <laughs> i need to do this all the time every spare minute that i have <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah right on so i'll put those links in the show notes and then uh for a recommendation i'm going to recommend a gentleman that lives local to me his name is craig pinhorn and that's his uh instagram handle and he's a knife maker um i relate to him a lot i mean he's he's got boys and he's a dad he lives in calgary actually so it's really close to me but um we always kind of had conversations but i never really delve into his feed and he's doing some incredible work 
um, like he's made his own San Mai and really interesting. So it, it's oh, it's nice. cool finding people that are, you know, you, you discover people that are close to you, that there's actually potential that, hey, we could get together and hang out and, and talk about this stuff and share with each other. So uh, yeah. interesting. Check out Craig Pinhorn and I'll put that in the description as well. Yeah, one thing I, I learned, you know, going into this, going to Blight Show West, I was really nervous going the first time. I was like, will I really be accepted in this, you know, in this market and these people? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I made some really great friends at uh, Blight Show West and we still talk and, and everything. It's it's pretty awesome. This community is really good. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's one thing I, like, I had plans to go to Blade Show this year and I'd wanted to before, um, but then obviously it's canceled now but man I, i'd love to just like you mm-hmm. say just meet these people and, and hang out face to face there's some you know instagram's great and it's it's nice and you can encourage each other and learn from each other but um man you meet somebody in real life and you can actually have a conversation it's so so much more valuable so i'm looking forward to when things open up again yeah. and I'll, hopefully yeah, i'll see you at a blade show sometime soon yeah and you can see the people that you think are you know our stars like uh you know, Neil and Mareko and, uh, you know, all those great makers. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Get a photo with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. That's good stuff. Yeah. Right on. Well, I want to thank you again for your time. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Yeah, you bet. And thanks to everybody who listened. Uh, be sure to check out some more shows on the Makery Network and we will see you in the next episode. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.